Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Wise Athletes Podcast, where we invite you to join our journey to understand how older athletes can achieve high performance and longevity in athletics. I am Joe Lavelle with Dr. Glenn Winkle, and this is episode 18 of our podcast. Glenn and I are joined today by Rich Voss of Voss on Track Coaching. Rich is a highly accomplished track cycling racer and coach. Rich is a five-time Masters World Champion, 14-time Masters National Champion, and he has coached five Masters World Champions plus many Masters National Champions. And Rich has set five Masters World Records over the years. Yeah, Rich knows power, how to train with power, how to build and recruit fast-twitch muscle fibers, how to get the most out of what you got from mom and dad. But that's not all. Rich is a master at athletic longevity knowing how to stay in the athletic game for a long time by focusing on camaraderie and health as the basis for long-term high performance and enthusiasm for sports. Be sure to listen in to the entire episode as Rich offers his best advice for improving your sprint near the end of our talk. It's definitely worth your time. In our talk with Rich, we discuss the following topics in this order. Genetics, muscle fiber trainability, VO2 max training, goals versus interests, time management, gym work, recovery, building a better sprint, even if you're not a sprinter, and camaraderie. I think you'll find it interesting, and you might even pick up a few tricks for getting stronger on the bike. As always, Glenn and I hope you find this information helpful in your quest to become a wise athlete. Okay, well today Glenn and I are joined by Rich Voss, owner of Voss on Track Coaching. Welcome to Wise Athlete, Rich. Well, great to be here. Great to see you again, and great to see you too, Glenn. It's been a while. Likewise, yes. Good to see you both. As a bit of an introduction to Rich, I have some notes here that I wanted to let our audience hear. First of all, Rich has raced on the velodrome for 27 years and as a part of the Hammer Racing Team provided by Thorne for the last 22 years. He's a five-time Masters World Champion, a 14-times Masters National Champion, and a past holder of four Masters World Records. Wow. What were those world records in, Rich? Well... One of them is a surprise to most people, but two were in uh, flying 200 for different age groups. Two were in team sprint at two separate occasions. And the last one was team pursuit, which kind (laughs) of boggled everybody's minds. Impressive you could do both. People that know me particularly, yes. There's a lot of sprinters that do very well in that event, but people that know me, it's probably the furthest from anything that I would be thought of as doing. But it was uh, a good friend of mine out in California, uh, Jay Wolkoff, was riding Team Pursuit with this group there. They trained together under Roger Young, and they were all set to go go to Worlds and, and do some big things. And Jay, is he's, he's good at just about everything he does. And in this particular case, his, goal, his job was to go a kilo right off the bat and then get out of the way. And it was a 3K, so that only left 2K for three people to finish worked out perfectly. With a month or so to go, he couldn't make it and called me up and said, Rich, how'd you like a gold medal? And I go, oh, <laughs> is this a trick question? And uh, anyways, uh, that's kind of a short story of a long story, but we got together and that was the greatest group of guys in the world. And we just had a wonderful time and we won the gold and set a world record. Nice. Super. So was that five Masters World Records that you'd had or, or was it four? One, two, three, four, five. Well, one took one over, you know, one was the team sprint. And then the second time it did it again. So technically there were five, but there were only four at one time. Ah, okay. I'm still uh, going for my first world record. (laughs) All right, Rich, 
a little bit more about you here. You've been a level one USA cycling coach for 16 years, and you were the 28th person ever to earn the USA cycling's power-based training certification. Is that right? That's correct. That was back when uh, power meters were coming into vogue and USA Cycling decided training our coaches properly on it. Definitely the hardest test I ever took. Hmm. Since then, I've learned so much more, specifically because most of that is tailored towards endurance athletes and road. And when you go to the far end of the spectrum where the sprinters live, it's quite different. The software is not tailored specifically for that because the software's set up for metabolic effect, you know, how to improve your FTP, VO2 max. I mean, you can training stress score, uh, all that stuff. And a sprinter is not the same kind of animal and they don't even use, it's not an endurance event, obviously. So it took a lot of years for me to use that and doing it in conjunction with sprinters to figure out what works for sprinters with this kind of training and what doesn't. And so I've come to a pretty good place with that right now. I've read that five of your athletes have earned Masters World Championships, and you can't even remember how many of your athletes have earned Masters National Championships. I firmly believe, obviously, you have to have a good program, a good solid program for your athletes, but a good athlete makes a coach look good. And I would highly attribute a lot of my success to the fact that I've been fortunate enough to be working with some very dedicated, very passionate very motivated, hardworking athletes. And when you have that, you almost can't go wrong. But on the other side of that is you better be ready for them and you better give them what they need and you better be able to work with them to bring the best out. And so I feel very fortunate that I've been able to do that with people. Right. So at the conclusion of this little bit of a summary of who you are, Rich, as far as being an athlete, master's athlete and a coach, I think it's fair to say that you know a few things about helping master's athletes achieve their potential. Rich, at at a high level, what would you say is the secret to your success? Good question. Again, I've been fortunate enough to have been able to work with some very good people. And to this day, I have the group I work with are the best. Um, They're like family. And that's part of it. Uh, I only take on a very limited number of people because I want to have kind of relationship with my athletes where they're they actually become good friends and that opens the doors to communication it's very uh rewarding for me and i think that that helps a lot Um, with power-based training i can test people and find out where genetically they're predisposed to be best and we can work from that i don't have any barriers to communication people can call me text me pretty much any time of the day and so by having all that available i think we do some good things And my coaching is based totally on science. And I I don't give out things to do that don't have a reason. There has to be a good reason. That and being able to track things with power-based training makes me a better coach because I can see inside their crank arms. I can see what they're doing. I had a coach for a year in India, and he went from being pretty middle of the road to setting their uh, national record in 200. I actually had him come out to Colorado for 10 weeks, and we trained here for a little bit. Those are the things that help me be a better coach. When I hear helping athletes achieve their potential, the thought always runs through my mind of, well, I mean, yeah, I get that you mean like helping people to be as fast, as strong as they can be given whatever limitations. Some of them are genetic. Some of their limitations relate to how much time they have for training and maybe other things like that. But underlying all of that, well, what does that mean? 
obviously there's training prescriptions, right? You know, you're going to do this, many sets of that, and this power, this, and recovery, that. But it would just seem like there's got to be some sort of a, whether it's a, a philosophy or it's a mechanism, it's a, I don't know, an approach that you have to fit all the pieces all together to help your athlete to be healthy so that they can recover well and avoid injury so that they don't have to miss workouts and get detrained and and being time efficient so that they whatever their limitations on time are what should they be spending their time on if they don't have time for all of the things that would be useful to do and and maybe for the athlete that does have more time and recovery is more the issue how can they be stress efficient so that given how much of a recovery budget they've got how do they spend their stress on the things that make the most difference to whatever it is that they they want to achieve so i'm i mean it must be there must be just some complicated web of factors some algorithm you can just punch all these things into it and come up with the perfect program well and maybe maybe it's Part are, I mean, you said it's all science-based, but there's got to be an art element too, to it as well. Yes. I'm t- when I talk about science-based, I'm talking about the actual workouts. You're going to go do this workout because this is what it's going to achieve. And this is, you know, in my experience and everything that I've read and everything that I've known and everything that I experienced myself, this is why you're going to do that. I've always believed that you don't have to be an athlete to be a good coach. You can. There's great coaches out there that that don't compete. What I'm saying is just because you're an athlete doesn't make a good coach. Just because you're not an athlete doesn't make you a bad coach. But I think if you have both, if you have the ability to coach people and you're an athlete, so you can empathize, you've been there, you know what this feels like. Whenever one of my athletes says, you know, that's the hardest workout I ever did. My comment is I never give you anything I wouldn't do myself. So I, I've been there, I know the pain, and I know why, why it's necessary. I don't believe that kind of pain and, and workout is necessary all the time. But occasionally, you're going to have to put yourself in, in a pretty good place of pain in order to get the results you want if you want a world championship. And that's part of one of the things I'm on the list to talk about today is what are your goals? What do you want to do? Because if your goal is to not necessarily win a world championship, then there's probably not the need to do those kind of workouts as often. You know, there's things like that. So to answer your question and making a long story longer, (laughs) it's a matter of taking each person as an individual, finding out what they want, finding out what they're genetically predisposed to, what they like, what their hours are like, putting the whole package together, talking to them, getting feedback constantly with power-based training. I get a file from every workout. I can see how hard it was. I can see whether they did it at the most optimal way, you know, because there's different ways of doing our workouts. And you can see that, well, this wasn't done quite well. You'll get something out of it, but you could get more out of it if you just do this, this, and this a little differently next time. And so we're constantly tweaking the process, making sure when they work out, they get the most out of it. And when people get tired, and I have metrics that tell me that they should be tired, but that doesn't figure in life stress and relationship stress and all that, that figures in training stress. So it's also that feedback from the athlete. Okay, what I'm saying is this, tell me how you're really feeling and constantly tweaking. Okay, well, maybe you need a day off or maybe, oh, hey, you're doing good. Let's maybe bump this workout up a little harder next time, you know, things like that. So it's 
communication, it's being on top of things, it's looking at things, and it's feedback. When we had chatted earlier, you mentioned two broad buckets of things that Mm -hmm. were central to your method. Uh, One was, I think you categorized it, uh, genetics. Although I think that some of the things that fall into that bucket, really, it's really kind of like, what's the situation? What's the environment? Because genetics are, of course, going to be important in terms of things like, uh, is it a, a person who's naturally slow twitch or fast twitch? Or you know, do they have some kind of a gifted level of VO2 max versus more of a normal person? Exactly. But also things like, what's their life like? You know, how much time do they have? And things like that. These are all. Yeah. What do you like to do? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you know, are your goals? Like, do you want to yeah. be world champion, or do you just want to have fun? Exactly. I had an athlete that was doing crits, road races, and things like that, and thought he wanted to try sprinting. Did a little testing with them. Yeah, looked like pretty good potential for that. Actually, took third at nationals in the five hundred and qualified in the top three at two hundreds in the sprint several times, did not enjoy sprinting and went back to doing endurance track because he enjoyed it more. Okay. That's wonderful. That's why I say, what do you like to do? It isn't just what level do you want to race at? Do you want to race at world or nationals? It's what events do you enjoy the most? Most people tend to like to do what they're best at. So that's where the genetics come in. If you're fast twitch, you tend to like sprinting because you're good at it naturally, but not everybody's like that. So that's something you have to kind of decide. For myself, I can identify with the not everybody's like that. <laughs> My superpower is time trials. I can show up without any training on somebody else's bike and I can do well. And I hate time trials. I, I will there you not go. do it. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, I'm throwing my, I have to throw myself against people with a lot of fast twitch and I'm um, Mr. Slow Twitch and oh, well. You can train that to a point, but at some point, if you're slow twitch, it's very, very difficult to be, if you're a time trailer, it's very difficult to be a top sprinter. So, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I I didn't need very high level advice to know that that was going to be true. <laughs> the second thing was then your process, which I, I assume is more just, okay, now that you know what somebody likes and what they want to achieve and what their physiology orients them to doing well at, then you go through some sort of a process to get them to be able to achieve as much of that potential as they can, given their gifts and limitations. Yeah, that's my job as a coach. Yeah, that's what what I'm hired to do. It's a matter of looking at how much time they have, what their equipment's like, what they have available to them, their resources, what resources they have. Then we start looking at hours per week and we start by start putting together a program based off all that. And I go, I go on a um, four week cycle where I like to give masters particularly an easy week because you have to have that recovery. So I do this hard, harder, hardest. And invariably when you get to that hardest week, the comment I've been heard many times is I'm getting a little crispy because I've been in the oven. I'm almost done. And then they look and they go, oh, that's right. It's an easy week coming up. It helps you push harder through that harder week, that hardest week. It helps you get more out of it because you know there is a little break. And an easy week isn't an easy, easy week. 
it's just easier so you can maintain what you've built and get some good recovery, come up for air for a couple of days, and then you dive back in. And so for master's athletes that don't have the time, this works very well, I found. Well, so why don't you walk us through this, the first part of your equation, the, you know, the genetics, the, the situation part of it? Okay. Um, give an example. Okay. Well, first of all, when I take on an athlete, we sit down, I get their history because you can learn a lot from their history. Did they play football? Did they, were they power lifters? Were they volleyball players? Fast twitch kind of sports? Or were they long distance runners or, you know, grand fondos nowadays, that kind of thing, which would tell me not so much sprinting. So you get the kind of the overall feel that way. Then I do some testing. You know, I, I have people do uh, aerobic tests. VO2 max test, and a couple different versions of some sprint testing, short and long sprints. And it's either very obvious, and if it's not, then you have an all-rounder. You know, and there is such a person that, that has, that's pretty good at everything. And then, you know, they have their choice. Sprinters, obviously, if they want to do well, will need to sprint. And slow twitchers, if they want to do well, need to do long, long road races, stage races, things like that. I'll give you an example. A dear friend of mine, she's become a dear friend of mine over the years, and she's done very well. A lot of people in the track circuit, both elite and masters, know Dawn Orwick. And once we met and sat down and talked about it, and she was on board, she said she took a certification class, uh, learned a track at Boulder Valley Velodrome, and fell in love with the track and wanted to give it a go. She'd just done a year of gravel racing, and you know, these seven hour rides and just hated them. It's like, well, it became pretty obvious why she hated them because she wasn't built for that, <laughs> not even remotely. And so I did some testing and then we sat down and I says, well, it looks to me like uh, you could do very well in the sprints. And I'm always very careful with that because I've had people that said they want to be sprinters. And when you give them the, the workouts, it's very different than standard bicycle training you don't do nearly as many of the long rides. You don't have, you know, the group stuff. You have the group stuff for workouts, but you don't have these rides where you can go on with people for three, four, five hours, like like you know, eight hours, seven hours, whatever the roadies do these days. I've had people start to do sprint work and they don't like it because they, I want to go ride my bike. I want to go ride my bike. Then this comes back to what do you want kind of a thing. That's why that's a big part of this. So I was real careful with her and saying, okay, you know, it's going to be a different kind of training, you know, or, you know, make sure you want to do it. And uh, we did a couple of weeks of it. And I said, so how do you feel about it? She goes, oh, this is awesome. This is great. Why do you think I wanted you to coach me? You know, <laughs> I was like, well, okay, great. We got it. So she had the genetics, she had the desire, and she loved sprinting. Well, that's great. Well, tell me, how did you know? that she was genetically predisposed. She'd been after a year of some real long, hard aerobic type stuff. Her aerobic capacity was average. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't outstanding. And her sprint power, her longer sprints, and especially her peak power. I mean, there's a real good indicator right there. Were really good. She, she had a pretty darn good sprint right off the bat. So an untrained sprint was high power. Yeah, yeah, better than a lot of people I've seen that have tried training for years, things like that. 
I mean, there, there's times when it's like, okay, it's a little murky. And there's times when it's real obvious. And that, that was a, a beacon flashing saying, I'm a sprinter. And so we took it from there. But then I had to make sure that this is something that she really wanted from in her heart, that this kind of training was okay with her because it's not the kind of training people expect that aren't familiar with sprint training. Right. A true sprinter will look at that and go, yeah, bring it on. And that's exactly what she did. And you can see she's won world championships. She's won bronze medals at elites at 38 years old. She's taken that genetic predisposition and she works, she works her ass off. There's no doubt about it. So you put all that together and bingo, you got it. Awesome. So if, if somebody, let's say somebody is a more, not quite so obvious, more all rounder mm-hmm. type, but they want to be a, a sprinter or they want to up their sprinting game. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they, they like crits and mm-hmm. there's tons of sprinting and crits. I, I can tell you from personal experience how challenging that can be for the slow twitch guy. So what do you do to help a person up their sprinting game? I mean, I'm talking about helping their, their muscle. Exactly. Like in this genetic area. Yeah. Having their body become more of the sprinter type. Exactly. First thing again, testing, make sure that they're anywhere near an area where that would be a good idea for them. If, if their whole goal was to do well in whatever they were, what mom and dad gave them. And if it looked like uh, they had a, enough fast twitch, because that's, you have to have some fast twitch. You can take fast twitch and aerobicize it pretty good. And you can take a sprinter and make them a pretty good uh, road rider. It's very, very difficult to take a, a person with a high propensity for, of slow twitch muscles and make them a sprinter. You can improve them, but it's hard to get them beyond that. So you have to figure out first if that's a good idea or if that's possible. And if it is, then it's a matter of focusing on that. You know, you talk about training your weaknesses. And if you want to be a crit rider and you have the, the ability to sprint, you have to do a lot. Of, you have to get in the gym. Even, even for a road rider, especially for masters. But it's just a matter of focusing on the goal. And so you give workouts and you, you, you got to have aerobic capacity to get to the sprint on the crit. So you got to have a, a decent FTP and VO2 max. Because if you don't get to the sprint, a sprint's not going to do any good. But then you have to work on the sprint because once you get there, you need to be able to have something. You know, you have to have that we- weapon in your arsenal. So you have to just put all the pieces together. And if somebody wants to be a good Kurt rider, you know, it's, it's, it's give and take. You can't, it's very difficult, especially as you get older and as a master to do everything. A young guy, yeah, they can, they can do a lot of different things and they can put a lot of hours in and they can be good at a lot of things. But as we get older, we have to kind of pick and choose and specialize at some level. Now, if you want to be a master's national master's world champion, you really have to specialize in my opinion. There are very few people. There are some that win a lot of different events, but most are specialists. So for a crit racer, if that's what you want to be, you basically have to train to be a crit racer for the most part. You know, I'm not sure the percentage of people who will be listening to this who want to be a track sprinter. Yeah, I understand. That's a a rare breed, Yeah, you know, in the larger cycling scheme of things. But I mean, unless it's a, a triathlete, I would say most people are interested in having a little bit better top end. Sure. 
Absolutely. They wouldn't necessarily want to give up anything to have it, but sure would love to be able to do better on the sprint to the town line or whatever circumstance comes up, whether it's in a crit or a road race or just out with their buddies. And they just would like that little bit of extra to call on. Mm-hmm. The idea of being stronger, being able to recruit your muscle fibers, uh, your fast twitch muscle fibers when you want them. You know, I think that this is relevant to a lot of people. Oh, no doubt. But it's still the same principle. If you wanted to be a better sprinter, you need to sprint. And a little bit of time in the weight room will help. Some specific sprint workouts will help. Uh, Without going into uh, details, that's pretty much the general overview. Well, let's let's come back to that specific. You know, what what could people do to improve their sprint power, their their fast twitch? But for now, let let's just understand your process. I mean, you had said that mm-hmm. there's the, this first bit of getting to know them and understanding what they bring to the table, what their gifts are, what their limitations are, and then you would build a program around that. So I was going to talk a little bit about first, you know, we talked a little bit already, we touched on genetics and uh, muscle fiber type. I've done a lot of reading and um, listening to uh, a gentleman named Andy Galpin, who is the guru of muscle fiber type. He's done, he, he knows everything and anything there is to know about it. So if you really wanted to dive into the deep end of the pool and learn the physiology of muscle fiber types, just uh, Google Andy Galpin and take a look at that. Yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, okay. So you have muscle fiber types. The trainability is, is part of it. Can you train a highly slow twitch person to be a sprinter? You can train them to be better, but highly unlikely you'll be a sprinter. And I'm talking about road sprinters now, um, even in that avenue. You can get better, but you have to kind of look at what mom and dad gave you. And, and I, you know, I talk about uh, sprinting road versus sprinting a track, and we, we've kind of covered that a little bit already. In terms of the muscle fiber type, let me ask you a question that has sort of been on my mind. And, mm-hmm. and it may be that the answer is, well, nobody knows for sure, but you know, here's what I think you know, based on your experience. But if you have a solid answer, that'd be even better. The idea is that the pure slow twitcher becoming a sprinter is really hard, but you can make a fast twitcher sprinter more aerobic if they wanted to train that. And so that sort of suggests that it's possible to train the type two, the fast twitch fibers to be more exactly aerobic, to use, to, I guess, grow more mitochondria. That's it. That's it exactly itself. Yep. And be able to burn, you know, use oxygen in real time to make power. On the other hand, taking type one muscle fibers and turning them into type two is very hard to do, or maybe that's impossible to do. Yeah. They used to think that was impossible, but there have been, now there is more debate these days as to whether that's the term impossible would be accurate, but you can only go so far. And the amount of time and energy you would take to do that at the expense of other things for somebody in that area would be probably wouldn't be worth it, you know, is what I'm saying. But you can improve, you can improve that a bit. Okay. So unless you're somebody like me, who's all slow twitch and your heart's dream, your heart's desire, the only reason worth 
the only thing worth living for is to become a champion sprinter. I'd really have to jump through some hoops. To yeah, and even then, I don't. I can't say there's any guarantees. It's still right. Very, very questionable whether you could get to that level. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you, maybe you could win a sprint at. Glenn's a very good sprinter. <laughs> you know, I've actually match sprinted him twice in my life. Um, yes, and he, yeah, and he gave me gave me a run for it. That was so you you can you can get to a certain level and be pretty good, but national world level, that, that would be a, that, that I, in my opinion, that would be a stretch. Okay. So, but yeah. I, but even to get to what it would be possible to get to, it, I really would have to want it because I'd be yes. swimming upstream, fighting against the tide to try to make that happen when it'd be probably better if I just had better goals. I, I would agree with that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, that's useful. Uh, I've always been interested in that. All right. So I think you had mentioned, but didn't go into any details about the VO2 max. I don't know. Is there anything you do there? For the road? Yes. Uh, VO2 max and a power meter is very, very uh, useful tool for VO2 max because if you go a little higher than zone five, you're starting to bring in anaerobic capacity, which is turning on a completely different energy system. You start turning on glycolysis. So if you want to target VO2 max, using a power meter is very important to be able to do it hard enough, but not too hard. It's one of the few areas are like that. But VO2 max is very genetic as well, but it's also trainable. So you can have a low VO2 max and still get some pretty darn good results. Now, if you have a high VO2 max and you make it higher, that's even better. So you're still limited by your genetics at some point, but you can still train that pretty well. And that's a pretty difficult, painful workout too, but very valuable, very useful. How do you know how, what's that threshold for? I want to work out, you said zone five, but help me with something more specific. Zone five in power terminology is right above the aerobic zone. It's your, it's your VO2 max, volume of oxygen, maximum volume of oxygen your body can absorb. So the body will take uh, oxygen in the lower lungs and diffuse it in your bloodstream, carry it to your muscles, and how much of that is able to be delivered is your VO2 max. And you can train your body to do that better. And that is through training in what we call zone five. So zone four would be FTP or functional threshold power or lactate threshold or whatever the terminology is these days. So you get into that zone and you hold it for three, four, five minutes. Most people, VO2 max, five, six minutes is the most you can hold it. So one way you can tell is go as hard as you can for five or six minutes and knock off a small percentage for your aerobic anaerobic com- capacities contribution. And there, there's your, your power. Or you can do an FTP test, which are, there's a million ways to do it these days. But if you have a good way to do an FTP test or you have the software, it can tell you what zone five is. And so you, you want to go into zone five and... You want to have your work to rest ratio be equal, or you can do what they call um, like 40, 40, 20s or 30, 30s, where you go 40 or 30 seconds at VO2 max, and then 20 seconds at 70% of VO2 max. So you have that little rest. And the way you make those harder is you make them longer. You keep adding how many of those 40, 30s. You can do five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes. You can start carrying those out. 
That's kind of a big overview of different VO2 max type workouts. Okay. And this would be a VO2 max workout is a workout intended to increase your VO2 yes, max. Yes, correct. Correct. Okay. And the, and the key is to, from a power perspective, to not put more power into the pedals than you can sustain for roughly five minutes. And again, it, part of that is the more fast switch you are, the, more, the higher your anaerobic capacity the more that changes because if you were to go all out for five minutes and you're a, you're a track sprinter, you're probably doing a lot of that with your anaerobic capacity, not your aerobic capacity. So there's, there's that, you know, and trying to figure out where that limit actually is. So if you're a sprinter, you might be able to do five minutes at a much higher power than your VO2 max, because you can contribute a lot more from your anaerobic system. Does that, if that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a, a difficult uh, needle to thread. But if, if, you, if you have a power meter and you have the software, or if you have a coach, you can dial that in much easier. But just by doing it by feel is next to impossible, in my opinion. Got it. Okay. All right. So that would be how you would uh, try to get your uh, aerobic engine as big as you can get it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, good. Uh, what else? Then you have to look at the time you have available. You know, how much training time do you have? How much time do you have for training and how much time do you have for recovery? I consider recovery time and training time in the same block because you have, you can't have one without the other. You can train it. It's not difficult to get an athlete to train harder. It's difficult to get them to rest harder. And so I like to build those into the programs because if it's a mandatory rest day, it's a lot easier to accept today's your rest day. But if you don't have time for a rest day, if you're working all day and you're on your feet or your job is physical, then you have to find that rest somewhere else. So you have to look at your time available. Well, so what about the guy that uh, works at a desk? Can he be recovering while he's working? Yes, 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 you can. Sometimes almost too much. Studies have shown sitting all day is very detrimental to your health. So even if you're sitting all day, it's a good idea to get up and do something. And then those are the people that I like to uh, have do active recovery, you know, half hour, hour, easy spin, get on the rollers for half an hour, maybe do some spin-ups, something like that, that isn't going to stress the system much. It's going to flush, uh, flush the muscles out and allow recovery, but not just be sitting at your desk all day. I don't think that's great for recovery. It's better than going out and working hard because that's more detrimental, but it's, for people like that, it's better to find time to do at least a half an hour of something. Okay. Well, so your um, how to get there process, your, your mm-hmm. approach to now, now you understand what the person wants to do. You understand where they're coming from, what gifts they have, what limitations they have. And and I suppose in, in your mind, it all seems doable, right? That the situation and the goals match up well enough that you feel like you can help them and they're not going to be pissed off at you two years later when it never worked out. Oh, I agree. I take, I take this very seriously. I've been an athlete that had a coach. I model my coaching after my very first coach. The, the thing about having a really great coach first time is you don't realize how good they are because you think, oh, that, that must be pretty normal because you'd had nothing compared to. Then you have other coaches and you go, wow, I wish I'd Wish I'd have realized how good it was. <laughs> My first coach was Garth Blackburn, and he's a very well-known uh, athlete from uh, 
few years back. He was uh, like ranked 12th in the world in Kieran from Houston, Texas. He's, he's now, I understand, a wonderful chef. Still impressed as hell by, by him. How we connected, how we worked, and how he worked uh, with me, that's the way I always wanted to be. And so that, that's what I do. So I take, I take this very seriously. I don't want somebody spending their money and not getting something for it. That's like the worst thing in the world. You know, you, you pay a coach all year and you, you get nothing for it. So either you better along the way be having something like, well, this isn't working, this isn't working, or, th- you know, this, or that. So they, they understand instead of, well, why didn't you tell me or what was the problem? And the nice thing, again, with power is there's usually some good indications about what's going on. And uh, by staying in contact and constant feedback, you know what's going on. And you can, you can tell people when they need to rest more or they need to work harder and things like that. So having a coach, I think, is very important. Not everybody can afford a coach or not everybody wants a coach. So the other option, obviously, is you can do it on your own. And there's a lot of information out there. And you can do a pretty good job of it, I think, as long as you are able to read, understand, and uh, apply the things, which I think is very hard to do for yourself. It's because it's hard to be unbiased about things. I'm my worst person to coach myself because I always overtrain. I'll tell my athletes, no, you need a day off. I tell myself, okay, you, you need a day off. By lunchtime, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling okay. I'll go out and do it. And so you have that, and it's hard for people to, to discipline themselves that way. Sure especially when it comes to uh, recovery. With master's athletes, it's balance is important. You want to be able to give enough for, you know, you have to work on fitness, you have to work on strength, you have to work on aerobic, anaerobic, all those things. And so depending on the person and, and all the things we've already talked about, you want to be able to cover, cover those bases. Uh, I believe the older you get, the more you need to be in the gym unless you have physical limitations. And I don't mean just lifting for cycling or for racing. I think the older you get, the more you need balance. You know, you ride ride and race a bike your whole life and you have certain muscles that are very strong and do very well. And you have other ones that are not so good. And so by keeping everything balanced, I, I prescribe a fair amount of upper body work for my older athletes. And it isn't to necessarily be stronger in the bike. It's to maintain balance, health, and overall uh, fitness so that when they're on the bike racing, they feel better, they sit better, everything works better. So I highly recommend looking at the gym and not just during the winter, year round, but periodize it. You know, maybe there's times where you focus on it more and other times of year, it's more maintenance, but a continual time in the gym during the year. I think that's very important for masters as opposed to maybe an elite rider who doesn't necessarily need all that. Well, and so if we were talking about the masters cyclists, but not necessarily the sprinter doing standing starts, things like that, you know, are we talking about doing heavy weights, squats, deadlifts, things like that, or do body weight exercises work? band work, you know, like they could do in their own house? I prefer and recommend weights, resistance. Uh, Bands are okay, but what you want is you want tendon strength. You want bone strength. You're going to get bone strength from doing heavier stuff. And I don't mean heavy stuff. I mean heavier. It's all relative. So getting in the gym and doing something that will stress the muscles, you don't need to be a bodybuilder, but tone, strength, 
and the ability to move things around. Like to failure, are they doing like uh, what they could lift three times and then they couldn't lift it anymore? It depends on the, if you're focusing. Anybody, when they're focusing in the gym during the, the off season, you can put a little more into it. Then yes, then there, there could be, I'll recommend like th- three or four sets of something and the last set will be the failure. So you get good work, good work, good work, push it, things like that because your body will adapt to things. And if you just do enough to work it at some point, you're not going to get any more out of it. It's just going to kind of go, okay, here it is again, same old thing. I'm, I'm okay. So you, you, you constantly have to be stressing things in order to, for them to adapt, stress, uh, rest and adapt. And so, yes, I think, uh, I think heavier, more gym focus for most riders just a couple of times a week would be very, very useful. Well, how do you deal with the problem of recovery? The fast twitch fibers seem to be the ones that get damaged the most easily. Uh, yes, that's true. Injured, but just damaged from stress, and then they have they need more recovery. And if those are the same muscles that you're then using when you're on the bike, then you really seem to be having a problem of getting recovered well enough to then do your bike workout. How, how do you deal with that? Well, that's where you know periodization is important. You know, in the fall and winter, perhaps you do a more focused uh, workouts in the gym. Definitely, when you get into spring and summer, when you're riding more and you're doing more focused bike work, then you would move more to a maintenance thing. So then, then maybe you're stressing things, but not nearly as much. It's more, it's more stressing it enough to maintain. So not to failure. What does focus versus maintenance mean? You do. Yeah, less weight, less sets, not necessarily less reps, but what I see in maintenance is you take your core of what you've been doing and you just pare it back in, in order to maintain. Is there a formula there? No, I just kind of look at what they did. people do the, the month before and try to add some variability to it to keep it interesting and, and move things around so you're not doing the same lifts. If you're not doing the same lifts, you're going to be getting the muscles a little differently, and so uh, as long as you're doing enough weight to keep them where they were, or perhaps build just a little bit, try to move on that side of things. And by that point, most people tend to recover pretty well from those because it's not like going to the gym and spending three, four hours like a bodybuilder. It's going to the gym, getting some good work, and then going home and having uh, a good meal, some good high-quality protein, some good high-quality carbs, recover, get some good sleep. The, the key to that is it's not just doing less lifting. It's making sure you're getting the quality recovery that you need as well. And between all that, people tend to do pretty well with it. And once you get used to that program and you used to going to the gym and then, then riding, track spinners were going to lift super heavy and more maximal weights. Road riders, I would not recommend that heavy and that kind of thing. And if you're a slow twitch person, you're not going to be able to anyways, and you're not going to have the muscle damage. So it's easier to recover from it too. On the other hand, this is one reason I recommend a little bit of aerobic work for sprinters in the winter too, because your recovery comes from your aerobic system. So by taking a short focus on aerobic capacity and building that, I think can set you up for a better year also, as long as you don't overdo it. This attracts sprinters. For road riders, you know, you're obviously going to be doing a lot more of that all year round. Ah, okay. And so... You're not having people come home from the gym and the next day they're really sore from what they did at the gym. They've, you say they got used to it. And so that, I guess that means that they're 
they're not doing a big step up. There can be some soreness and stiffness, a little bit. Um, that's not unusual. But my experience is once you, you know, when you first start into a, a new phase of a program, say you're changing the weights around, there'll be soreness and stiffness for the first uh, week or two. And then you adapt to that and it, you feel the weights. There's a little stiffness in there, but it isn't anything debilitating. Being able to do both lifting and endurance training on the bike has always been a tough juggling act Yeah, because I'm sore and I'm tired. I personally haven't ever found the right mix. Right mix. Exactly. And that's, that's key. You have to have the right mix and everybody is different because uh, nobody has all fast switch or all slow twitch. There's always a certain percentage of both, just more of some than, than another. And so some people will get sore and some won't. I coach a few uh, track endurance riders, pursuiters, points racers, and things like that. For the first couple months, doing the gym with the riding was like, wow, it's impacting their uh, workouts. But eventually, they get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm not so sore now. And I try to take the one day where it's it's the harder gym day and make the next day a pretty easy day. Yeah. There's also a thing, you know, it depends on if you want muscle size, if there's if that's a goal, or if you just want the uh, neuromuscular system to improve, because strength is a combination of both. And there are these cellular responses. There's an aerobic response. When you do aerobic work, gets uh, expressed and your body says, okay, I need to get better aerobically. And then you have this mTOR response, which says, oh, you're working the muscles. We need to grow. Well, when you do concurrent training like that, like cyclists do, they kind of compete for each other. And so the aerobic expression will win over the strength expression. So if you do the strength and then aerobic, you can get stronger neuromuscular adaptation, but you may not get much muscular size if that is. And that, that could be a good thing because if you're a climber and you want to get stronger, but you don't want to get bigger, that may be a good way to manipulate that. But if you want to have a little more muscular size, which can help with strength, then it's good to have a gym day with maybe a, a rest day afterwards or, or something along that line. Oh, that's interesting. So is there another reason why, other than being a climber where weight is really a major uh, driver of success, that you wouldn't want the muscle? Well, road race where you have a hilly road, you know, up and down, up and down. Every time you take that weight and you go up, gravity makes it harder. And so a lighter person is better. It's watts per kilogram. And so if you can raise your watts without raising your kilograms, you're going to get faster. So there are times when that could potentially be a benefit. So you have to look at what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve and see if that's, that's a thing. Well, uh, so what else would you want to talk about? And then I want to leave time to talk about just sort of general advice to the master's athlete who would like to improve their sprint. I was just going to talk about, um, you know, time management because the thing with masters is you've got masters that are still working and then you get to a certain point where you get a masters that are retired. I just retired last March. So congratulations. Pretty wonderful. First thing I did was I started riding more and I overtrained myself <laughs> because now I did now I had, I had free time to ride all I wanted. And it's like, Oh, it's a great day. I'm going to go out and ride. I'm going to go out and do some sprints today. I'm going to go over and do this and that. And uh, overdid it. So time management and rest and recovery are still critical. And the, and the older you get, the more important that is. 
Uh, as you get older, your recovery is not as good. And it's easy to get into the f- mode of, I used to do this, so I, why can't I now? And you really have to be careful with that because uh, it's easy, it's very easy to overdo it as you get older. And the more time you have, you have just at the time where you're like, okay, now I've got all the time I want. Now your body won't deal with it so well. So it's kind of a mixed bag that way. Yeah. Well, so one of the questions related to that is, I mean, that's my issue right now. I mean, I use, I'm sure everyone's sick of me talking about it, but I use Zwift for my training. But what that means for me is that I have a lot more time to train now because, you know, if I'm up at too early to really do anything else, well, I can get on the bike. I can go get a workout done. So I I find that I have enough time to do as much of much workout as I want to. What's limiting me is my ability to recover from the workouts. Exactly. So I guess I would love to get your thought on this idea of you've got a budget of recovery. You've got so, you know, X amount of recovery that you can, that I can do in a week. And I could easily blow that budget doing whatever I wanted to. More Zwifting. (laughs) And, And the more high intensity work I do, the more heavy weightlifting or the more uh, race pace work I do, the harder that recovery is. Of course, that's all, also the funnest stuff. An hour of training does not equal X amount of recovery. You know, what you did in the training times how long it was is more what the formula looks like in terms of the recovery. So, if an athlete has a budget for recovery, how do you help them allocate that stress, that bucket of stress that they can fill with whatever workout they do efficiently so that they get the best adaptation from it? Okay. The first thing I look at, one of the great things about power-based training is you can fairly well monitor using the TSS, training stress core, which, you know, the performance manager, a lot of people are familiar with that. And so I can see what, how stressful a workout was. The basic premise is a TSS score for a workout, if it's 100, that doesn't mean you're going to get the adaptation of one hour at FTP, but it's going to take the recovery, the amount of recovery it would take if you did one hour at FTP. And sprinters, it's not exactly that way because it's, like I say, it's it's uh, neuromuscular a lot and anaerobic, but I find it tracks pretty well. So I still use it. I'll set up each week with a goal of a rough amount of TSS for each week. And I plug in a, a rest day every week and then some active recovery days each week to go with the harder workouts. And by the time we get to the easy week, everybody's moving along pretty well, but they're ready for that easy week. And it just seems to work out pretty well. So I build all that into the schedule. They tell me how many hours a week they have every day to work train. They tell me how many hours a week they have to train. And I plug those in with the appropriate amount of rest for what I see a workout. If it's a high stress sprint workout, the next day tends to be pretty easy. If it's a medium stress workout, they might have two of those in a row, things like that. So it's how you place each workout, where you strategically place the rest days, and then bringing in that easy week to kind of top it off. And I I have goals that I look at for improving on TSS per week and raising 
CTL, chronic training load, which is a, a good indicator of fitness. So by looking at all that, that's how I do it. For a person that's doing it on their own, it's going to take some study and practice and experience to see how that all really fits together for them. Yeah, it's a tricky business. I suppose that the athlete who's not being coached can always just use how they feel. Yes, good point. There's a lot of fitness trackers out there you can use now. So there's ways to tell if you're in a good place. But yeah, bottom line is if you have the self-discipline to go by how you feel, if you're tired, do an easier day. If you're feeling good, push it a little bit. I mean, that's usually pretty good. The problem is a lot of people are like, okay, today I'm a little tired. I'm going to go out there and then you run into some friends or or you, you come up against a Strava segment that you in the wind's blowing the right way and you go, oh, I, I really shouldn't do this today. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Boom. I do it. It's not worth pushing yourself on an easy day because then you can't do the hard work as hard as you need to, to get benefits from it if you're tired on the next day. And eventually you you can run into overtraining. Right. Before we run out of time, I wanted to make sure that we talked about the business of the master's athlete who would like to be better at the sprint. They would like to have a little more top end, more than they have. What should they do on a regular basis? What should they do over time that would make them be better than they are today in a sprint? I would recommend putting in strategic sprint blocks into your training. It's not like you have to do it all the time because then you would you would forego other things that are probably more important to the overall joy of your cycling and racing. But you throw in, take a three, four-week block every couple months, focus on sprint work two, three times a week, set up some sprint workouts, they can be, I like downhill sprints for leg speed, accelerations from 10 miles an hour, standing start type work because that can um, build strength on the bike. I prescribe a, a workout that has become nicknamed as grinders. Uh, there's some coaches say they're great and other coaches say they're a waste of time, but I find them very useful and it's strength on the bike. You know, you put into, you do 50, 50 to 60 RPM up a hill and you do a week or two at zone three, then zone four, then zone five, then zone six, by, and you keep cutting back the time. You might start out with six-minute, seven, eight-minute efforts, and at the end, you're doing one-minute efforts. And the only way you're going to do that kind of power if your uh, cadence is the same is by more force on the pedal because power is cadence times force. And so if the cadence stays the same, then you're going to more force on the pedal. So if you're, if you're doing one minute grinders at six, seven, 800 Watts at 55 RPM, you're putting a lot of force on her. That's going to build some really good muscular endurance, power endurance. That alone isn't going to make a good sprinter, but it's going to make a, give you a good base for, for uh, strength on the bike. Then you take that and like I say, downhill sprints, uh, accelerations, on the flats, and even some uphill sprints, because with uphill sprints, you're going to keep the force on the pedal higher throughout the sprint because gravity will work against you. And so there's so many different kind of sprint workouts you can do. Go go out with your friends and have uh, 30-second sprints to assign and race each other. That'll really get your sprint going. Do you ever do anything like a fatigued 
sprint training? So at the end of a workout, then do your sprint training? I used to. Um, I thought, you know, th- there's this muscular principle, motor units, you know, you have the, the, the size principle. When you do those kind of efforts, you're going to use the largest motor units first. And as they fatigue, you go to the smaller ones. So my thought was, well, if you pre-exhaust those big ones, then you're going to be training those smaller ones. And in the big picture, you're going to do better. But I've talked to a few uh, exercise physiologists and had the general consensus is if you want to train sprinting, you have to do those all out while you're at your, your best. So you get the most out of it. So I've sort of moved to that direction. Oh, interesting. The only thing that I was thinking there was that some of this has got to be psychological and very few things feel worse than being exhausted and then getting out of the saddle and trying to sprint. Well, yeah. And being able to feel that and know you can do it anyway has got to be helpful. I I would say, I'm sitting here thinking about, because I I tend to put things in the track sprinting all the time and I keep kind of back up. We're talking more about the overall at this point, you know, when you get to end up for crit, you're going to be sprinting tired. So there, there definitely would be some benefit if, if you're going to do that, to do that. I would throw that in there as an occasional workout so that you can, like you say, you can feel what it's like and you can sprint tired and know you can do it. But initially and primarily, I think you would be wanting to do sprints fresh and then throw in that fatigued sprint in there on occasion. Got it. And then the last thing related to the sprint thing was you were talking about your grinders. Are those seated? Yes. Yes, definitely. And is there ever a time for training getting out of the saddle? I mean, I think one of the problems that master cyclists have in general is they don't get out of the saddle enough. And so they're not working those muscles so that when they need to get out of the saddle to do an out of the saddle sprint, they're not very good at it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. The grinders, like I say, are more of a foundation for the sprint to build that muscular endurance and the ability to to keep pushing and power endurance. They won't make a good sprinter per se because they aren't really sprinting. They're just laying, it's a foundational thing for, for the actual sprint work. So we do those earlier before we start our hardcore sprint work or along with sprint work. But definitely uphill sprints are good to be done seated and standing. I alternate them, things like that. You, you want to be doing them both. You know, the seated gives good, uh, good strength in the posterior chain, glutes, the hips, and uh, the force when you're se- seated, which is very important. But you definitely need to be standing because, like you say, when you start a sprint, a lot of times you'll stand up and go. And you get a lot more by using pulling into your upper body as part of the, the sprint and using all those muscles, you can produce more power. The initial sprint standing at work is very important and very good. Those were my questions, uh, Rich. Thank you very much. Was there anything else that you wanted to add into the mix here? Uh, I would just, you know, the, the thing is you, you have to enjoy the journey. You need to set up a program. You need to do it with people that you enjoy and you can share it with. Because if winning that gold medal is all you have, it's hard to sustain that motivation, desire, and passion for that year after year after year. It's the journey there, the people you share it with, the people you train with, the people you go to these competitions with, you know, they become your second family. And without them, personally, I I would have quit a long time ago. So you have to, to find a way to get a system 
a group of people that you can enjoy this with and make it as enjoyable as possible. And that way you enjoy the training and the side effect is you get faster and you get better. So it's, it's a nice, perfect combination. Your goal doesn't have to just be to win a gold medal. Exactly. You could be satisfied today and, and next year in your athletics. It could be to have a long and healthy life. Yes. Where you're active for a long time because you're, you remain athletic because you continue to enjoy athletics. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the nice thing about athletics and, and feeling good and doing well and sharing it with other people is it just makes your life better. I feel grateful with the life I have, and, and this is why. This is a big part of why. I have a wonderful family, both my family and my team and my peeps. This is why I coach, too. You know, it's, it just gives fulfillment to me. And I just wish everybody could, could get the same thing because it really makes life worth living. Yeah. I hear that all, every time we talk to athletes and coaches, that the social connection, the camaraderie. Yes. That's really where it is. And the rest of it is icing on the cake. Exactly. Well, well said. All right, then. Well, hey, thanks again, Rich and Glenn. Thanks very much. Rich, uh, I'll get some information from you and we'll put that in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. If they have questions for you, they can just reach out to you directly. And from there, we'll just say thank you and have a good night. Yeah. Great hanging out with you guys. Good to see you both. It's been, like I say, it's been a while, so... We need to catch up more often. Yes. All right. Take care. Good night. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion with Rich Voss. I hope you found Rich's tips as interesting as I did. If you have questions for Rich, check out the show notes where you can find a link to the Hammer Racing Team provided by Thorne website. Rich's contact information is there. And if you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the website see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.